Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? Well, there are two incredible things happening today, and then I'm going to tell you about our guest. First of all, it's World Kindness Day, and it's a day for all of us to be kind to one another, but I believe that World Kindness Day should be every day. Today is also National Actors Day, and we have a lot to celebrate because the SAG after strike is over. But more importantly is the fact that I have Josefina Lopez on the show tonight. And when Steve Moyer reached out to me and asked me to do this show, and, uh, and I began to do the research and get prepared for tonight's show, I got more and more excited because she, she is just probably one of the hardest working women in show business. And she's nodding to say that's true. Uh, but Josefina, before we begin, I always ask my guest, who or what are you celebrating today? Wow. Uh, I guess my mother and my grandmother are the first people I think about because um, I wouldn't be here without them, but I also wouldn't have this calling to be of service to humanity and to provide healing and inspiration to others if it wasn't for my mother and my grandmother. Let's call them out by name. Catalina and Rafaela. Um, yeah. And they both passed. So um, I still have them in the spirit world, but not in this world. <laughs> well, the sh uh, I, I know that they're here, so we raise a glass to them tonight. Um, I also begin my shows. I've laid out three mystery cards. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even know what the cards are. So pull a number one through three, and we're going to see what road this takes us down tonight. Okay, one, two, three, three. And the card is, um, well, this is a, 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 an unusual card for you because the cards ask, how can you become a better role model? Well, I already think that you are a role oh, model. Thank you. Well, here's the thing. The way you become the best role model you can be is by not caring what people think about you and doing what is right. Uh, if you ever set out to be a role model, then you are about appearances and about looking good. And you're about your ego, not about doing what is right. Because sometimes... Um, I've had to say things that nobody wants to hear and things that are unpopular. And maybe 10, 20 years later, people are applauding me for it. So sometimes it requires you to be the person who speaks the truth, even if nobody wants to hear it. So that's how you become the best version of yourself, which could be a model for others. Well, you were way ahead of the curveball before it was fashionable to be ahead of the curveball. That's right. Um, <laughs> one of the interesting things that I ask my guests to do is to send me a photograph of them at five years of age. Oh, okay. And I asked for this photograph of you, and I love this. You haven't changed a bit. Uh, <laughs> I, you are so adorable in this picture. And the reason I asked for a photograph of my guest at five years of age is because I believe that five, year old, five years old is the purest self. It's mm -hmm. before life begins to tell you who you should be or who you shouldn't be, who you are and who you are not. Um, but interestingly enough, your life truly did change at five years of age. That's right. Uh, my parents brought me to the U.S., and so at five years old, I woke up at night and my mom said, we're going. And we had our bags packed and we went to the U.S. And I remember looking at the, my mom said we were going to Los Angeles. And in Spanish, it means to the angels. So for me, I thought we were going on a spiritual journey. And I kept waiting for the bus, like the, the wheels, thinking, okay, when are they going to lift up to the sky? <laughs> and then I said, oh, we're coming to L.A., Los Angeles, the city, not, you know, and uh, yeah, my life changed because I didn't speak English. My whole world, everything, the values. Um, yeah, I left behind uh, Mexico. I mean, I'm still Mexican-American. I'm still very much connected to my roots, but, uh, but my whole life changed. Um, do you still have family uh, there or? Uh, and Actually, get... uh, my father went back to, uh, to Cerrito San Luis Potosí, which is central Mexico. So for Christmas, I'm going to go visit him, uh, and I try to go at least every six months back to Mexico, because he's 88 years old, and we don't—I don't know how long we have him—and uh, so we always check up on him. And uh, yeah, so I'm very connected to Mexico. I definitely am bicultural, bilingual, and I'm also an indigenous person. I also recognize that. 
that I'm a, a mixture of two worlds, two cultures, and I'm also a very spiritual person. Well, um, I am too, so we're going to get along just fine. Yes, no, and age five is so important because we are connected to the divine. And then around age five, six, our brain waves change, and then we get disconnected from the divine. And that's when our, we lose kind of what we call our inner child. Some of us don't because we fight to keep that creative spiritual self. We feel connected to it. But uh, but yeah, our life changes at five. Our inciting incident and most stories have to do with the trauma that we experience at five years old, the false interpretation we made about reality and how that our whole life now is is connected to that moment of that false interpretation at five years old. Uh, I'm, I, I talk about age five and how important it is. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's the first inciting incident in our life story. And if you can trace your trauma uh, to five years old, something happened that you're constantly recreating over and over, and that's be that becomes your drama. And, and that's why I tell writers is look at these traumatic moments in your life at, at age five, at 12, at 18, and then the moment if you ever felt abandoned by God or abandoned by everyone. These are moments that you constantly recreate, and all your stories are going to be connected to these four traumatic events. Well, it's interesting. I was just reading a book about a young woman who um, her parents, unfortunately, it's, uh, was mur uh, were murdered um, when she was a small child. And she was taken uh, to who became her adoptive father. And uh, she grew up in a very spiritual household. And that spirituality continues to be very much a part of her life. But I want to ask you, one of the things that fascinated me uh, and that I said, I really have to interview her, um, was reading in your bio that you are also a shaman. In training. When did your, um, where do you feel that your spiritual, uh, your spiritual roots came from? Do you think they came from your mother and your grandmother? Or do you feel that they're part of your environment? No, they definitely came from uh, my mother. And my grandmother, because they also, my, my grandmother, I did not know this, was a healer. She was the local exorcist of the town. I did not know this until I was already like following this path, thinking I'm crazy because this is what I'm being called to do. And then my mom said, oh, yeah, your grandmother would get the knock at the door in the middle of the night because someone got possessed. And it would be, you know, like she knew the right. And I was like, like, I wish you would have told me this growing up because I would have explained my life. So I definitely feel that it was on my mother and my mother on my mother's side were Italian on my father's side were Native American. And and so I but I also have it on my father's side because the Native American ancestors. So I definitely think it's in my genes because mm -hmm. uh, it's something that we're born with. And it's also a spiritual contract. And also because my children now have it. And then my nieces and nephews have uh, this gift as well. We have very different types of gifts. Yeah. So for me, I, I'm in training because. Uh, you know, but but I want to explain something because I know you're fascinated by this. So I'm going to clarify this for you if you didn't already know. Um, in People that are shamans don't call themselves shamans. They call themselves elders. They call themselves abuelo, abuela. And what that means is that, you know, shaman is a made up word by anthropologists to explain someone who's extraordinarily magical. When in fact, someone who really is a healer, they, they're extremely connected to their community, to God, to, to themselves, to others. So it's about someone who's completely connected, that they hold the, the wisdom of the ancestors. They hold the wisdom of the trees and the poetry, and they speak to spirit. And so there's not, they don't see themselves as magical people as much as they see themselves completely connected to source and to others. And that's what makes them magical. But we all have that ability to do that. And so uh, I'm a shaman in training in that um, I'm not really like the shaman the way you expected, but I do have a lot of the abilities and gifts. And, and you know, that when I was a little kid, I, I was very empathic and I could feel other people's feelings. I could predict things. I could see things. Now I, I have certain gifts that very few people have that I, I'm, thank God, because I don't think many people could handle certain gifts that I have that I'd be like, nobody wants these <laughs> gifts. You know, like uh, I have this ability to see dark entities, uh, but they show up as cartoons. You know, like I can see demons and all sorts of things, but they show up as little cartoons or stuffed animals in my in my visions. So I'm able to. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I help people with stuff like that. And uh, and I go, well, I guess it's it's in my family lineage. It's in my calling. Um, so, I, so I welcome it because I, I, I love it. I really feel like, you know, when you found your calling, even as weird as it is, 
you know it's yours because you love it and you can talk about it all day and you want to like, tell right. everybody. I absolutely it. love that. You said earlier that when you came uh, to Los Angeles that you didn't speak English. No. Um, how did you learn the language? Did you have tutors? Was it through school? It was um, through school, but mostly watching cartoons. Wow. I learned a lot of English by just watching cartoons and that's how I caught up. And then, and then it's funny because then, you know, we weren't allowed to learn Spanish in school because they made these laws where you couldn't do bilingual education. So then I had to learn Spanish by talking to my parents and watching the news in Spanish. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, the, but, you know, you said that you grew, uh, you were watching cartoons at this early mm -hmm. age. I'm always curious as to where your calling came from, because oh, I believe that those of us who are in show business, mm -hmm. if we're lucky enough to be part of this profession, and it and it is, uh, I, I do believe uh, divinely in that, um, that it calls us. Um, where do you feel that your calling happened uh, okay. that brought you? Uh, How deep can we go? How deep can we go? Because I want to go as deep as you okay. want to go. All right, here you go. Because. Um, because you, you're a spiritual person, I will tell you. Because, you know, the superficial answer is, oh, I was born knowing I was going to be a writer, and then I just did it, and then, you know. But what I learned in doing the spiritual work and doing past life regression, I'm also a past life regression hypnotherapist, and I train people how to see past lives. And what I learned is that in one of my past lives, I was doing theater in England. I was a British actress who lived in my into my 90s, and I did theater for, like, my whole life. Wow. Because I would explain why a 10-year-old who had never been to the theater, because we couldn't afford to go to the theater as Mexican-Americans, working-class people, that I was trying to build a theater in my backyard. And my dad was like, what are you trying to do back here? And I'm like, I'm going to build a theater. And he's like, what? <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to have shows. I'm going to do this. And my dad was looking at me like, what is she talking about? And then, you know, now that I have my own theater, I go, how did I do it so easily? And I go, oh, it's because... I did this in a past life and I already knew what it took to create a theater, right? Secondly, the calling, okay? And this is kind of out there, right? I hope you're ready for this one. So when I did my past life regression, the very first one, I went to one of my past lives in the 1900s, early 1900s, where I was this Irish immigrant woman with red hair and I was in a chuck wagon crossing, I was crossing, I was in Colorado and I was very scared, but I was trying to get to California. So I was very brave or crazy. And I had a baby with me and I was trying to get to California because my husband was already there and I didn't want to wait for him to come get me. And I don't know, maybe I suspected he was cheating. Who knows? You know? So then I, I, I see two Mexican men in horses and I immediately assume that they are bandidos because the only movies at that time show that all Mexicans are bandidos. So I remember like seeing these two men and they were dressed and I was scared and I was certain they were going to rob me. So I, I took out my pistol and I shot one of them. And then the other one started chasing after me. And then I was so scared. I was like in this chuck wagon. And again, when you do past life regression, you see the movie, you see everything. And it's so vivid. And you're thinking you're making it up. But you're like, where am I getting this from? And on the road is a rattlesnake and the rattlesnake starts rattling and the horse just goes ah, and then um i fly out and i hit my head and i died so i died with a karmic debt to the mexican-american community um and i basically when i decided to incarnate i said okay i'm gonna be mexican because i racially profiled a mexican and i assumed things, certain things about them because the media portrayed them as bandidos so i made assumptions so now i'm going to become a writer and I'm going to try to change that representation of Mexicans. And I'm going to try to understand what it is to be Mexican. And so that's why I'm Mexican-American. And this is why I've devoted my life to writing uh, hum stories about the dignity of being Mexican and the humanity of Mexican-Americans to make up for this karmic debt. <laughs> wow. 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 Uh, reading your bio and reading your press, uh that you it said that you started writing uh playwriting at 17. Uh -huh. so did playwriting start at 17 or did you get your first works uh produced at 17. i actually wrote my very very first play when i was 11 and that one i produced in my backyard with my cousins and we you know we did it and but at 17 i wrote my first play they got produced at 18. um and then uh and then i wrote real women have curves uh after that yeah 
so a real woman have curves is my because you know I I I must have known how to write already because you know how does a seventeen year old write her first play no eleven year old write her first play and then like I write another one at seventeen and then it gets produced and it becomes a PBS special it wins an Emmy and then I write my next one at nineteen and then it becomes this award winning play so I think I I already had experience you know usually when people have an extraordinary gift that they're born with it's because they developed it in past lives. Now I'm going to ask a, a question that I think I know the answer to. Okay. <laughs> uh, but um, were you uh, surprised, amazed uh, at the success of Real Women, or did you know that this was unfolding exactly as it was meant to be? Well, I have been surprised, but I also know that I'm being divinely guided. That I felt like I channeled uh, Real Women Have Curves because when I wrote it at 18, I had an idea that this space, uh, you know, this factory, this experience was something that was so fulfilling to my spirit and inspiring to me. And it made people laugh because it was so funny. But I was really amazed how when I did a rewrite and I improved the script, how it just wrote itself. Mm -hmm. And and to be honest with you, I'm 54 and I'm still learning the lessons of real women have curves. And one of the most profound things that I learned just recently um, after doing spiritual work, is that, you know, when I wrote the play at uh, 21, I thought Curves was about body shape. And as I do more healing work, I realized that this, this symbol that's like what we call infinity symbol is actually like when it's standing up or the number eight, what we would think of as the number eight is actually the symbol for the sacred feminine. And it has curves. And the work that I do is connected to Mother Mary and compassion and sacred feminine energy. And what happens is I learned that the curves were not about necessarily like the fact that women have pelvises that open up and give us curves, but it's about the fact that all women have sacred feminine energy. We have the divine within us and the sacred feminine energy is, is what allows us to form community to help children survive, to transform the world, to harmonize when there's chaos, this energy, it create, brings harmony. And that's what women can do. Women create community and create harmony. And we know when I've watched the play and I see what happens to people's bodies, because as the women undress and then they have this incredible sacred moment of connection, the audience is usually relaxed and they laugh and they let go of shame. But it's a very sacred moment that makes the audience transform. Um, when people watch the play and then they leave, they leave lighter. They shed some of that shame. So it made me realize that that Real Women Have Curves is about the sacred energy that women have. So I feel like I keep being surprised. And I feel that I, I, did, I do feel like I manifested it because at 18, I wanted this to be a musical. At 18, when I was living in New York and walking through the theaters and looking at the marquees, and I would visualize Real Women Have Curves, the musical, that, that that's what I've been doing, you know. But I also feel like I've been divinely assisted because the message is so important for women and, and for immigrants and for people who feel that they've been left out. Um, I feel that this is a very important story. Uh, I mean, it's taught me a lot about my dignity, about humanity, about love. Uh, I've learned so much from this play. Well, there are a couple of things and everyone's, we're going to get real woo woo right now. Okay. Good. Uh, so, uh, yes. Um, number one, uh, in numerology, uh, my number today is eight. Mm -hmm. So that it's meant, you're meant to be here tonight. Also, mm -hmm. I heard today, Carol Alt, uh, supermodel. Uh, is now going to be doing her own channel on OnlyFans. Oh. Um, she's 62. Oh. And because she wants control of how her body is being seen and perceived yeah. and everything. And 62, of course, is an eight. So all these uh, things are coming up tonight. Uh, so uh, the, the, this play becomes uh, a success for you. It becomes, uh, you know, a very successful film, uh, Sundance Film Festival. Um, and you would think that doors would open automatically, <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen. And shortly after the success of this, uh, you had the opportunity uh, and he had the opportunity of working with you. And that's Norman Lear. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell uh, a little bit about how the two of you came together and uh you know and i'm really surprised at that time that doors were still 
posing for you? Yeah, so in 1994, we did the, uh, I, I was playing Anna in the production, um, in the Real Women Have Chris production at the San Diego Rep. And I only did it because the woman we cast as Anna was doing the Dallas production that was running at exactly the same time and they offered more money. So anyway, I got stuck doing it, which I was happy to do. It was very therapeutic. So we invited Norman Lear's company to come see it because we felt that he, of all people, wanted to do a, a sitcom about Latinos because he had tried with um, AKA Pablo, but it got um, it got canceled, that show, for many reasons. Um, and so I always wanted to work with him. So we presented the play to him and he really saw that there was an opportunity to do a show there. And we tried and I was only 25 and he was trying to get us on TV. And it was it was it's really hard to believe that. But the reality was that it was too controversial to do let to do a, a story about Mexican-Americans, you know, who weren't stereotypes, who weren't gang members or whatever BS, you know, they present as us. They were just a, like a Latino family that was a real family. We couldn't get it on the air. And well, it was really heartbreaking and it's sad. And I mean, you know, Norman Lear finally did it with uh, One Day at a Time, but this was like more than 30 years later. And and it's sad because I ask people like, what's so controversial about Mexicans being human beings? You know, But I guess, you know, at that time in 1995, it was. And it's, and it's sad, it still is, you know, because I've been trying to get a TV show on the air and I guess I'm just too outspoken. And I, you know, I, they still want to portray Mexicans as narcos. And gang members, I guess that's it. Or sexy streetwalkers. I don't know, but it's just been a challenge. So I believe me, I, I pray for divine assistance that we can finally get Latino shows on the air that that are a celebration of our humanity. And they don't have to be, we don't have to be perfect. We just want to be real people. Well, Margaret Cho talks about the same thing, you know, with the Asian community, because okay. when All American Girl came on, um, the show, which I loved, and I she was brilliant at it, as she is with everything, uh, but they were constantly trying to tell her uh, mm -hmm. that what she was doing was not right or it wasn't being accepted by a larger audience. What do you think it is in this country that people uh, want to pigeonhole people in boxes and say, this is who you are, this is how you will be betrayed, and this is... Uh, and yet... Every time you break the glass ceiling and you've broken a few, there seems to be other uh, glass ceilings for you to break. Mm -hmm. um, why do you feel that is in this country? Do you have any grasp on that? Yes. So white men want to be the hero of the story, right? And they want to control the narrative so they can be the heroes. And I tell people, look, if white men are the heroes and the world is as messed up as it is, they're not the heroes, you know? Thank you. Okay, the problems that you're going to try to fix are not going to be fixed by white men because they're creating the problems. You know, it's going to take people of color. It's going to take women. It's going to take a non-Western, non-linear, different point of view to, to heal and transform things. And so this idea, but also the idea, you know, well, let me explain something else. Okay, dramatic structure. Someone explained this to me and I was like, whoa. <laughs> You know, all dramatic structure is based on a man's orgasm. Did you know that, Richard? No, <laughs> so I didn't. You. Well, well, I heard something you tonight. <laughs> okay, storytelling is basically this. It's basically rising action, climax, resolution. That's a man's orgasm, right? This is how we experience storytelling, right? Women's storytelling is different, right? Women are, multi are multiclimactic, <laughs> right? And it, our energy is spiraling. Okay, we ascend and we we descend and we ascend. It's a very different way of telling stories. Also, this idea of the circle is very much a wholeness. The fact that it takes a community to transform things. It doesn't take one individual. This is the myth of the white male, is that it took one individual to save the world, one individual to conquer the West, whatever BS, you know? It doesn't, it takes a community. So an indigenous perspective is that, no, in order to any problem you're going to solve, you're going to need everyone's cooperation. And a compromise is not a dirty word. Compromise is a good thing. Everyone gets what they need, not what they want, because sometimes what you want isn't what you need. Right. And white men want to be the heroes of the story because that's how the, the West was won. Right. And, and I mean, they want to be the heroes. They want to be the cowboys, but they're the bandidos. Because if you look at history of Mexico, the U.S. stole Mexico. 
And the real cowboys are Mexican because they're the ones who had encountered the horses and trained and all that. So they took our mythology and then they made us the bad guys because they didn't want to be the bad guys. They, and the reason they stole Mexico is because they wanted to continue with slavery, right? Whereas Mexico had outlawed slavery, right? So this idea that the Mexicans are the bad guys is something that's been going on for a long time. And film and media is used as propaganda to make the white guy look like he's the hero when he's not. That's why. And so when you present other people who can be heroes or heroines, they don't like that, especially the majority of the showrunners, now it's changing a little bit, are white, white males, right? And if you look at the statistics, this is the truth. And I've been at this for 30 years thinking, oh, there aren't just, an, there aren't enough Latino writers. No, that's not true. There's plenty of Latino writers. There's plenty of people of color writers. But the men who hold the power basically get to create the shows. They get to control the narrative and they get to be the heroes. And that's why they don't want to let go. They don't want to be the bad guys because then you'd be like, no, you really are the bad guys. Oh, okay. You know, like they don't want that. Well, you know, that all makes perfect sense to me. And mm -hmm. do you think that it's shifting or do you think it is still, uh, we have a long way to go? We have a long way to go because, you know, I've been at this for more than 30 years. And, you know, the first 10 years when you're a person of color, you just think, okay, I'm going to be a better writer. It's my writing. And then after 20 years, you're like, no, I think it's the stories I'm writing. They challenge the status quo. And after 30 years, you're like, no, I have a loud mouth and I just, you know, tell it like it is. And they don't want someone like me in the writer's room telling it like it is because then they're like, oh, yeah. And I've had this all the time where people say, can you tone it down? Can you like not be such a feminist? Can you not be so outspoken? And I'd be like... Well, but then, you know, then I have to put up with racism and sexism. And then that's that. And you're not living your authentic self. Yeah. No, I'm not being my authentic self. And that's what you paid me for. And the other thing, too, is that you don't realize that. And, and you know, I know this now because I've always fought for myself to speak up. And I've been punished for it many times. And that's how come I, I have the career I do. I, I could have had more extraordinary. I mean, people go, why aren't you Shonda Rhimes? My God, you have so many stories. You've done so. I go, yeah, why aren't, why aren't I Shonda Rhimes? Oh, okay. Because. I tell the truth and I keep selling it and that's the job of a writer, but you know, I pay the price. Anyway. So um, the other thing is when there are microaggressions to your humanity as a person of color and you don't speak up, you, you are betraying yourself and believe it or not, your spirit takes the hit. Okay. Your body takes the hit and then people get sick. They get cancers. And again, people can debate me on this and I'm not a scientist, but, but I know what I know. And, and I tell you that I have so many people confessing to me how they sold out to their humanity, how they wanted to pass for white, how they changed their names, how they did the things that they thought they were supposed to do. And then they ended up hating themselves to the point where they felt they got sick or they, or they ended up hating themselves that they sabotaged themselves and it cost them in the end. And they realized I shouldn't have done that. And I said, I know, you know, and I was very lucky that I, I had two parents who were, they didn't have an opportunity to get an education, but they were really smart. And they were really proud of being Mexican. And they told me, don't you ever forget that you're Mexican. Don't you ever act like those people who, as soon as their life gets better, they stop being Mexican. And, and so I would take it to heart, like, no, like, I'm not going to deny that my last name is Lopez. I, as Mexican as my name is Maria Lopez, you know, like, I'm, not, I'm never going to deny that. And, you know, if you look at my picture, you know, when I was a little girl, I was constantly mistaken for white. And all the time, people thought I was white. I had to fight to tell people, no, I'm Mexican. And, you know, I dye my hair black so people know I'm also indigenous. <laughs> anyway, And so for me, I had to fight to, to be who I am because it could have been so easy for me to just say, yeah, you're right. I'm white. My name is Amy or whatever. You know, my name is Josie. Call me Josie, you know. And I could have done that with what some people did. And I said, but I just couldn't live with myself knowing that my parents sacrificed so much to give us an opportunity for them, for me to then slap them and be like, oh. My name is, you know, I'm Josie, whatever, like, you know, totally deny them. I just couldn't do that. And, and I, I thank God for that because I, I, I'm, an, I'm an authentic human being. I'm so real. Sometimes I'm too real for people. They go, like, girl, you're too real. You're too real. And I go, yeah, I'm real. You know, so. no, I love it. I, I heard an actress say this morning, you know, an Emmy Award winning actress that once her success happened after many, many years of, you know, struggle to get to where she is. She says, these awards did not make her head go like this. It made her go, okay, I've got to work harder. I've got to prove that I can do this and top this and keep going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've had, 
these amazing successes yourself in your career. Do you feel that with each success that it's gotten harder for you? Or do you feel that uh, the doors mm -hmm. open a little bit easier for you? They've opened a little bit easier. But I also realized that I didn't wait for doors to open. You know, like uh, no one would produce my play in Los Angeles. And Real Women of Curse was a hit. It had already been produced like 19 times all over the country. And I just couldn't believe that no one wanted to do it in L.A. And then I got tired of complaining. And then I said, well, I'm going to produce it in L.A. And then I did it with my own student loans from UCLA. I took that money and I, and I produced my own play. And thank God I did it because the producer saw it. And thank God the movie got made because now it can be a musical. And hopefully once the musical opens, uh, hopefully someone will say, hey, why don't we do a TV show? And they'll be like, okay, finally. Right. But it took me investing in myself in the same way that it took me publishing my own plays. It's going to take me doing my own audiobook. It's going to, and, and I don't mind because I feel like, well, you know what? I, I, I believe in myself. So I'm going to invest in me. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, when I hear about all the opportunities that younger writers with less accomplishment, uh, like they're getting deals left and right. And I'm like, wow, like there's a generation, there's a gap where like, we were struggling, struggling, and all of a sudden there's opportunity and there's like 10 years in between. And then like, we're too old now. And I'm like, I'm not going to allow that. And I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I deserve to be here. I deserve the same opportunities that 20 year olds are getting. I know that I know the reason they're getting these opportunities because they can pay them less and they can be manipulate them. And, you know, they're not going to like speak up the way I will. So I understand too, why they're getting the deals and not me. But I also say, you know what, that's okay, because um, I am happy to take the role of the elder. I am happy to be the person who carries the wisdom and explain to people why things are the way they are. I also am very happy to fight for others. You know, one of the things that I realized early on is that um, I'm going to be the kind of person that will tell a producer the truth and they won't hire me, but they'll hire the person behind me. And this has happened to me so many times where I come in and uh, and I speak the truth and I tell them what they need to know and they will not hire me. And the person behind me will thank me and say, oh, my God, thanks to you. I didn't have to put up with any racism. Thanks to you. Wow. I got that job. And they didn't speak to me in that way or they didn't say these kinds of comments that I had to correct them on, you know. And and yeah. So I, so I realized I tell people, look, I'm like Wonder Woman where I go. Bang, microaggressions, sexism, racism, you know, I block and then people behind me go, okay, you guys get in, get in. And I, 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 I see it. I see your own cartoon series in the future, right. you know, so then I, 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 and I'm happy to be that person too. I realize that I may never get the opportunities that I fought for and that's okay. Cause uh, my role as an elder is to, is to carry the wisdom and the truth. And then when I'm gone, hopefully other people will say, okay, you know, this is what Josefina taught us and we're going to carry this wisdom and continue to, to spread it out to our community. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm happy now that, you know, I've, I've kind of proven myself or that at least, you know, a, a show on Broadway will be like, oh, okay, I guess she is a good writer. You know, like, I want to ask you, you opened your own theater also. That's right. Uh, theater. Uh, open uh, because of these issues um, or where does the theater fit in in terms of your writing uh, and you know what was that experience like opening a theater and you know you've got your own uh, playing ground now yeah. uh, to create your own works so I had to do it because I couldn't get when I couldn't get produced in LA I was like how is that possible? Like Latinos are the majority in Los Angeles and I cannot get a play about Latinos. And I, I had like these racist comments and I just was like, well, I'm going to prove them wrong. This is going to be a hit. And sure enough, it was a hit. And I, I, you know, I presented the play so many times and it's a huge success because I knew what I was talking about. Anyway, so then I was so good at producing with so little money that I was like, wait a minute, I, I can be a producer because it's so much about building community. And if you can build a community and roll a community, a new possibility. And I was so good at producing that I said, you know, we need our own theater where we could present plays, not just once a year during Latino Heritage Month. Uh, but we, we can do Latino plays all year round and we can do women's stories all year round and we can do LGBTQ stories all year round that we can do 
like stories about all the people being left out of the American theater all year round. And we can have women of every shape, color, and size be heroines. And we can tell the stories that other theaters don't have the guts to do because they have to spend a lot of money. And back then, you know, when we were just starting out, it would cost us so little to do theater because I knew how to do it cheaply. Mm -hmm. then, then I said, let's take the risks. You know, like I produced the first Latina lesbian musical, right? <laughs> and I just said, let's do it. Let's make history. And, and I knew, I said, you know, maybe the Latino community is not going to come, but we're going to say that this is important and we're going to do it anyway. And well, we could do financial risks because of that. I'm going to assume that your audiences are very diversified uh, with your theater, but you've also uh, have productions that are uh, playing around the country. Um, how did that begin to happen for you? I mean, how did people become familiar with the fact that they could produce your plays? Well, I I, uh, I signed a licensing agreement with Dramatic Publishing um, many years ago uh, when I was 27 because they were interested in real women have curves. And I had a manager who was smart and said, okay, the only way you're going to get that is if you license all of her other plays. So then, uh, yeah, so that's how people started doing it. And it's, it's so wonderful when I get royalty checks and I go, oh my God, in places that I've never been to, they're doing real women have curves. And it's had over a hundred productions at least, you know, and it, it makes me so happy when I hear actresses say, my God, you know, I had my first acting role in your play. I was in a theater department at a college where they were just doing, you know, white, dead white men's plays and they produced your play. And I finally got an opportunity to play a Latina and everyone in the theater department finally took me seriously as an actor. And they finally got to see what I, what I could do. And, and it makes me so happy that so many Latinas got a shot to be on stage because of this play. And, and it just created, it cre it's created jobs for people. And ultimately that's it. You know, when I, like I met the cast, and I was thinking I was like 20 something. And I'm like, all these people have jobs, you know, <laughs> like, and they're all Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, you know, and Guatemalan. And I go, these people are, it's so, I'm so happy they have jobs, that this is maybe their first job that, that could potentially lead them to Broadway career. And I just, I'm so happy to be a part of that. That's amazing. Um, when you first wrote this, when did you know that it was ready for public consumption? Writing is like giving birth to a child. Mm -hmm. uh, so did you go through workshop stages? Were there? Uh, yes. Okay. So we did a, uh, the world premiere was in 1990. And, you know, I, I it, it wasn't quite ready, but it was very successful. So successful, the Warner Brothers called and wanted to option to a movie. And then, you know, I did another production in San Antonio where I did a rewrite, but I, I the, the director felt I cut too much. So then she helped me shape it back. And finally, at the San Diego Rep, uh, when I was in the play, because I got to act in it along with Lupe Ontiveros, who's this amazing actress, where I wrote the play for her. I, I, I really had her in mind. She added so much. And, and all the, the, the performer, being in the play added so much to the script that I was able to add so much to it. And that's when I felt it was ready. But it was the 13th draft. That's what writers need to know is that you never get it perfect unless you're channeling God and writing directly from God. You're never going to get it perfect in the first draft. And it took three, three, three <laughs> rewrites before I felt like, okay, now it's ready. And then like a year or two, then it got published for licensing. Yeah. John Christian, I saw an interview with him uh, a few weeks ago and he was talking about uh, the film, The Firm, which when that was his like first big success and he's just written a sequel to this. And uh, and it's not that easy, even with the success of that, to get this film uh, on its feet. And I and I hope I get this quote uh, correct. But he said that uh, the greatest piece of advice that he got was from Stephen King. Stephen King says, first of all, get the money up first. Number two, know that the finished product will not necessarily be what you wrote. And number three, get the money up front. In your case, you were very fortunate because you got a chance to uh, co-author the screenplay uh, mm -hmm. for the film. Um, how much creative control did you have? And did the film turn out as you had envisioned it turning out? You know, I had adapted the play into the movie like this was the third attempt. And so... I realized that it had to be opened up because I really wanted to have creative control and keep it as close to the play as possible. And then I realized that it doesn't work that way. So we had to reimagine it. And luckily, George Lavoux, who had seen the play and loved the play, 
was able to help me. And him being a white guy, um, having a different perspective, being from New York, he he helped me he, he helped me to see it in a different way. But ultimately, we saw that it was Anna's story. It was in the play. It's it's Estela's story, the sis, the older sister. And and so what I got was that you know it was a coming of age story. We could we could exploit certain things in film that we couldn't in theater and vice versa. And then we had to respect the medium and realize that we had to go outside the factory. So the story couldn't be about the immigration uh, plot in the play because that wouldn't work. So we had to reimagine things and, of course, add men to the story because in the play it's only women. And, and in doing that, I, I felt it became a better movie. So I realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in what I write and I'm more interested in the message that people get rather than how exactly it has to be. So I told, you know, and here's the difference. I tell people, look, the difference between theater and therapy is that if you need it to be exactly the way it happened to you, then that's theater. I mean, that's therapy because you want it to be like, oh, I want people to know this truth about my story because I got it, you know. And if you can't let it go yet, it's not ready. But when you can let it go, then it becomes theater. Then it becomes drama that people can, you know. Then it's about getting the wisdom and the message. And that to me is what's more, more important than, than, it, than, it, than it being exactly like I want it. Because sometimes it's better than what you want, you know. When you bring in people with equal talent or more talent or who are better at what they do and, and you know, like being a director or a cinematographer, then you just say, hey, I'm here to learn. I'm here to for your contribution. And it just makes it a better, better story, better film, better everything, you know. What so, is your process when you're writing a play? I mean, do you go off uh, for a period of time and just seclude yourself or are you picking up elements of your day to day life? What's your process? It depends on the project. Like, for instance, you know, right now I'm doing a, a biography on Gloria Molina, who was an incredible Latina uh, politician. So right now, this one, for instance, I'm just interviewing people, getting all the facts straight and then coming up with my story. Right. Um, but normally, no, I, I it depends on the story, because like oftentimes, like there's a playwriting contest and it's due in a month, you know, it's a deadline. I'm like, oh, my God, five thousand dollars or whatever, you know, and sometimes it could be like I already kind of have the story, but I have a month and I have to meet that deadline. And, you know, I have attention deficit disorder. The gift is that, you know, like I have the brain of a shaman. That's that's really what it is, but it's called ADD. And so my brain is able to focus and hyper-focus. And I'm able to, to really work and channel. And so it just depends, you know. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a secret about writing uh, that I share with my students that blows them away. Hopefully you think, because I think when I discovered this, I was like, wow. So I've been teaching writing for like, almost 20, more than, maybe more than 20 years. I was like, and one of the things that I do is I help my students understand their story. And I do a lot of spiritual, spiritual work under the guise of dramatic writing, you know, teaching. But one of the things that I started to notice was that when they would tell me uh, the theme of their life, and I, there's a technique that I get to the theme of their life because your soul has a theme and you're here to learn a lesson. And once I know what that lesson is, and I know other things about you, I can tell you all the works you're going to write. And so I start describing the movie that they're going to write or the play they're going to write. And I start telling them the whole plot and I describe it to them. And then they're like blown away because I'm blown away too, thinking, mm -hmm. how is it that I know the story? How is it that I'm seeing it? And what I realize is that, oh, because it exists already in the timeline. I'm pulling it from the future because you've already created it. Or I'm tapping into the fifth dimension where you created it before you incarnated. And so you've already created the story because I can see it. And then they look at me like, and I look at myself going, yeah, because if I can see it, you've already created it. So it's just a matter of remembering what you created. Because, you know, like I remember talking to composers and I asked them, oh, you know, because I just think composers are the greatest thing, you know. And I go, oh, how do you come up with music? And, you know, and they're like, oh, I hear it. And I'm like, where do you hear it from? I don't know. I just hear it. And then come to find out that music comes from the angelic realm and that basically composers are connected to the angelic realm and that they created it in this realm. And then they're just remembering it. It's just being down. And that's how come they already can hear it because it's already been created. And that's when I went, what? <laughs> Everything <laughs> going to be created in the third dimension has already been created in the fifth and higher realms. So it's just a matter of remembering because when I, I typed up, I mean, I wrote a play in four days one time. And then it won a bunch of awards and I turned it into a movie. 
And I remember thinking, I'm taking dictation because someone's dictating the story to me and it's going so fast that I'm not thinking. I'm just like, and I said, where am I getting this from? And they're like, well, it's something you already created. And I was like, oh my God. So that's like how I know that it depends on the story, you know, but it'll, but you've ultimately already created it. Well, let's go, to the, let's go to the angelic realm that's about to okay. happen. Okay. Because now Real Women is going to be a musical. It is a musical. Uh, yes. how, how did this all come about? So uh, the musical, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like I manifested it. Or maybe I already, you know, I had this idea and it was given to me and then I thought it was my idea. But somebody basically saw the movie uh, Jack Noseworthy. And he um, said, why isn't this a musical? This would be perfect. It's a coming of age story and it's got all the, ele you know, and so he saw it and I had already attempted twice before with other people. And so then his partner, uh, Sergio Trujillo, who won the um, Tony for best choreography, I think in 2018, if I get that, those numbers, no, maybe 2017, maybe earlier. Okay, don't quote me on that. And he had been undocumented while dancing on Broadway. And, and, and his partner, Jack Noseworthy, and said they were they were basically, uh, they were both hiding out because they were in the closet. And, and so then he found out that Sergio was undocumented. And so when Sergio became undocumented and then he won the Tony, he, he, he dedicated his Tony to immigrants, you know? Mm. And then he was looking for a story um, to, to, to do, to adapt, you know, because he wanted to do a, be a, a direct something. And so his partner saw Real Women and he said, why don't you do this one? And then his mother, you know, was undocumented. His mother was a seamstress. Um, and so then he's like, yeah, this is a tribute to my mother. So that's where he got the idea that, that this would be a great fit for him. And because he wanted to share his story of being undocumented too through this story. And so it was the perfect team. And I'm just so like, <laughs> you know, like just so happy. And, 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 you know, I just pray that everything goes great and that it gets to Broadway sooner than later. <laughs> Yes, yes. But I, from what I understand, you have two of the top Broadway producers uh, on board for this. Yeah, so um, the producers of Chicago. Very um, and Other hits like uh, Waitress, which I loved as well. And so I was like, so it was so amazing, you know, to, to meet up with um, Barry Wessler. Again, don't quote me on names. I'm terrible names. No, and, Barry and Fran Weisler. Weisler, Weisler, yeah. And um, yeah, to have lunch with them and to be like, wow, like this could really happen because I've had other people be interested, but then they didn't have the kind of backing from people. I'm who gonna got correct it. you for just a moment. Mm -hmm. You just said this could really happen. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> like I've been in Hollywood for so long, and I've had so many projects fall through. Like I've had so many deals that were supposed to happen at so many. I'm like almost a deal at every studio. And then something happens and strikes it down. So I do feel that there are all kinds of forces, not just divine forces. So I recognize that. But I just feel like sometimes when you're out to, to work for the light and to work for truth, sometimes they get at you in different ways. So so that's the kind of I'm like, okay, I requested that there be divine assistance and this happening because I ultimately I want it to be so inspirational to women that women love themselves and no matter what size they are, no matter what age they are, that ultimately we see that being a woman is what's beautiful not how you look, not where you come from, nothing. It's being a, it, beauty is, is, is synonymous with being a woman. And that's what I I've learned. This quote, because I pulled this from one of your interviews. It says, one of my goals in my writing is to represent the Latino community with all of the rich complexity and humanity that we have. Mm -hmm. And you've succeeded. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, is I mean, when are you involved at all in the will, or will you be involved uh, in the casting process or something, or is that something that you are completely? No, uh, I was involved to some degree. I all, you know, I also understand because I produce theater, the challenges of casting. So I also am not like uh, stubborn, like oh, it's got to be this, you know, because I understand how difficult it is to cast. With real women have curves, the movie we couldn't find Anna. It took like so long to cast Anna until finally America Ferreira, you know, turned out to be the right person. But it 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 took us like like shaking the bushes everywhere, <laughs> like you know, and and so um, with the musical, uh, what I wanted is to make sure that they would start casting in Los Angeles, 
because I felt like, look, I know they always cast in New York and I love Puerto Ricans. Uh, I love Cuban. I love my Latinos. I love you. I, I mean, people who know me. And it's, but I do feel that it, that it needed to be a Mexican American young woman to represent this role, to really capture Los Angeles and, and the, the West side. And so I felt like they needed to, to start casting in LA to give opportunity because I've been nurturing a lot of young people and I want to make sure they get opportunities too. And so they, they did come and we did do casting here, but they, they went all over the country and I mean, searched everywhere. And it was very challenging to find Anna because they go, you know, young women like this, who are big girls who are Mexican-American, they've never been given an opportunity. So where are we going to find someone who's ready to be, you know, maybe on Broadway if, if those opportunities were not there? So, uh, you know, so it was, it was very challenging, but they did find uh, Lucy Godinez in Chicago. I have not met her personally. I've seen her on Zoom and, you know, but I'll meet her next week. And I'm just so happy. And, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, they have to find the best talent. And, and so that's really who they have to get. And so I just hope that my, my community is ready. And, and yeah, I mean, there's so many triple threats. People have been waiting for these opportunities, you know, who are, who are ready. So I'm, I'm just so happy. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm so happy, you know, a couple of people from LA are, are in the cast. I'm like, okay, good. You know, we try to get people from LA and we're Mexican American, you know. I want to go back to your theater for just a moment. Uh, does your theater have a specific mission statement? And uh, how do people get works to you that they're interested in getting produced? Because that's what you're all about. So, you know, um, a couple of things that people need to know, because um, equity, you know, is there to protect actors, but they created these laws where now you have to pay actors as full-time employees. And then that means that instead of, you know, paying $600, now you're paying $6,000. And so that skyrockets uh, the budget for a production. And so for me, you know, um, one of the things that I set out to do was to try to do productions where, yeah, we really like try to represent as many stories as possible, but now it's it's become so expensive that, that we have to really be very specific about the kinds of stories that we choose. And, and one of the things that I really try to tell people is like, don't wait for anybody if we can't produce your play, because, you know, uh, we have to get funding. We have to get grants for every single production. You know, like I used to love producing theater at Little Casa because it was $2,500 to do a play. Okay. It was that cheap because we, we had, you know, tiny little 50 seat box. Now it's, close to fifty to $60,000. And now you understand why there's certain stories, you know, that will work in certain that are not. So sometimes you also have to say, you know, does my story have an audience? You know, like, who do I really want to see this, right? Um, at our theater, we try to do the kind of stories that inspire the Mexican-American community because we are in Boyle Heights and it also inspire women um, and so, so right now we're not really open to, to taking, you know, um, submissions because we can only produce so many plays and now we really always have to find funding for each specific play. So to me, I would invite you to buy the book called, um, uh, a playwright source book, uh, because that play lists every theater in the nation and all of their submission opportunities and every kind of play, like for instance, um, we do do LGBTQ plays, um, but there are other theater companies that specialize in that. Like, for instance, the Rhinoceros Theater in San Francisco, which, which I would I, recommend everyone. And I, I love it. I perform there, so I, I know. Yeah. Very well. yes. I've seen the best plays there. My friend Marga Go, uh, Gomez always performs there. And I love, you know. So we love Margo. I love Margo. Yeah. So then, um, so I tell people, well, look at, like, specifically, what audience are you speaking to, Right. So for us, I would say, if you think it's a play that is specifically for the Latino community, but specifically Mexican-Americans and women, and uh, and then you you can find sources of funding. And, you know, there's grants we can help you apply for, but that, that complicated things. I mean, I kind of am thinking about doing performance art and doing other forms of art that don't cost so much money, because I feel like the, the labor unions made it so difficult to produce theater now that it's like to say I, I'm a proud member of Actors Equity, but I think that the unions have made it almost cost prohibitive, not only for those to be able to produce theater, 
but also for the average person to go to the theater. Yeah. Because every time these prices go up, everyone, ticket prices go up as well. Because uh, it's the only way that a theater can sustain itself. Yeah. And when I first came to New York in 1979, I went to the theater two and three times a week. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky if I go two or three times a year. It's yeah. just so expensive to go to the theater. It's so expensive, yeah. And and to me, you know, the reason we did the theater is so that it could be affordable and accessible. And so we've tried to keep our tickets like like we're probably the che cheapest thick ticket in LA because we purposely do that so that it's not and it's not elitist. But also because we only charge like $25 or $30 a ticket, which is probably the most, you know, like sometimes for musicals, we may charge $35. Um, we're like, how do we keep this affordable and yet be able to make any money back? Because like most of the plays we do, they only like pay for half of the price of the of the actual production. The rest is all fun uh, grants and under underwriters, you know? So it is kind of very challenging now and... Um, yeah, that's why I thought about like doing other forms of art that can't be regulated. Like I want to do drive-by theater, like where we just run up in the corner and perform and maybe record it, and, you know, like where no one can regulate it. <laughs> well, if anyone can make it happen, it's you. Um, I, I want to thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I, like I said, uh, just reading your story inspires me. Uh, I hope that you will write your memoir someday because I it's am such a them, yeah. yes, great such an amazing story. Um, Steve Moyer, thank you. You've got a great publicist. When he reached out to me, uh, I didn't have to think twice about this. Um, I'm going to give you a chance in a moment to have the final word tonight. Okay. It could be about anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with. Uh, and when you say goodbye, uh, I will end the show so you don't have to worry about how do I end this? I'll take okay. care of that. Um, okay. I'm going to give my final word and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, okay. I want to, first of all, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's World Kindness Day. Make every day World Kindness Day. Uh, it's important. We're all in this. Uh, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but uh, it's very important uh, that we realize that we are all interconnected. And mm -hmm. it's very important. Everybody has a story to tell. and Follow Josefina's, uh, you know, example and tell your own stories as well. Uh, your stories need to be told and they will be told if you believe that they will be told. Um, one of the things that I love is just sitting in your room, looking around at everything that's in your room, uh, furniture, uh, posters, pictures on the wall. At one time, it was all a fantasy. It was all in someone's head and someone manifested it. So it's possible. Um, I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Mm -hmm. Pick the phone and call someone that you have not spoken to in a while. Go to your Facebook friends list. And we talked about the number eight earlier tonight. Reach out to the eighth name that pops up on your friends list. Mm -hmm and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know the impact that they've made on your life. And by doing so, what you're going to do is you're going to make an impact on their life. I have a dear friend, he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I want to leave the screen, but please promise me you'll come back some other time. Oh, yeah. You've yeah after the show, after, yeah. Once we're on Broadway, right? Yes. You've yeah. always got a platform right here. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and your body of worth. Now it's all yours. Oh, thank you. The most powerful thing I learned is that theater only takes two people. Right. And people get like, oh, my God, I don't have enough money. I don't know. I can't do a play. It takes two people and one person to tell the truth and one person to witness it. That's theater. Everything else, the costumes, the sets, it's extra. So everyone can do theater. And when we tell the truth, we bring more light to the world. And when we bring more light to the world, we raise the frequency 
And then when the frequency rises, that allows more people to tell the truth. And when they speak the truth, uh, more light comes into the world and then they raise the frequency and then more people are liberated to speak their truth and to live in their truth. So live your truth. And that to me is a source of happiness because the truth is our connection to the creator. Thanks.